Welcome to the Old Chats Pod with me, Amesha here. And me, James Factor. This podcast will tackle the taboo topic of mental health in a raw, honest and jovial way. With two good mates who've met in London talking about their own mental health hiccups with some help from some special guests along the way. Welcome to episode 22. This is the Fighter Pilot Chat. Here we speak to RAF, Red Arrows and Top Gun graduate Dan Lowes about working in high pressure environments learning through failure, and unlocking the potential in others. How have you been? Yeah, good mate. I've been out and about in a bit. I don't know if it's like you, but I just I definitely feel a lot more tired. Whether it's like mentally or physically fatigued after after going out and doing stuff. Like the next day, I'm pretty pretty written off. Yeah. What what you do? Socialising, getting out of the house, really, isn't it? Like, I don't know. It can it can be a bit tiring. I think probably because we've just been locked up for so long. Nah, that's just that's just age. That's just you going to say. No, that's, that's not. <laughs> You're exactly the same. Oh, yeah, I'm the same. Yeah, I, I find it. It is tiring, isn't it, to go out? Um, I think it will. I think actually, the other thing I realised is the the weather's been rubbish, hasn't it? Which ha- yeah, does, that doesn't yeah, help course. the whole. No. You need a bit of sun to get to feel good about going out and relax. So that will change. There's a conspiracy theory I saw on Twitter whereby people thought the government had just hacked all the the weather websites to say it's raining, so people don't go out. People don't go out and make plans. Absolute garbage. Absolute garbage. That is. People can't. They can't look outside their window themselves, can they? So I bet the younger, I bet the younger generation will check true. their phone. Very true. They're not open listen the to the phone rather than what's out of their window. Yeah, like I said, it's everything. Like, go at your own pace, don't you? Keep it gradual. We had quite a tough conversation with our old like rugby coach university. So unfortunately, like thoughts go out to Jordan's family and things. But one of his one of the students completed suicide a couple weeks ago. So whilst we're at uni, so I think just probably that whole moment kind of reiterates what we're doing here. That we need to just keep continuing this conversation, and I know like students must have like an awful time at the moment, um, even the past year. But yeah, like it's a bit a bit of a loss when I heard that news. But I was kind of like, you've kind of got to do things about it. And obviously, like thoughts go out to his, all the boys and his friends and family right now. But hopefully, we can start um, pointing people in the right direction and just keep the conversation going. Because there's a lot of things like I had, I had, I did like a talk for a few of them, and there's a lot of things I was talking about which resonated in both those grieving chats we had with Jenks and Jamie. Hopefully, this podcast aims to help other people. Yeah, I'm sorry to hear that. How was um, how's everyone else in that group? Where, how are they feeling? Well, to be fair, like, obviously, I don't know. Like, I don't know this. Kid, I don't know the kid. Never met the kid. But obviously, when you speak to when you speak to his mates and students, they're a bit like you're always going to be quite taken aback. And it's same with everything, isn't it? Like. Not everyone agrees in the same way. I can see some people like okay about it, but um, but yeah, it's that's, that's tough. But I think it just goes back to we've got to look after everyone. But yeah, you've kind of got to, it's got to ed- we've got to educate each other really when it comes to mental health if we haven't experienced it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's just like you said, just leading each other through it and seeing what's what's natural, or what feels good for all of you to talk about, and how much you talk about it. Oh yeah, hundred percent. And I think. Even this whole last few weeks and the world's opened up, like, I know we said it before, but people's conversations are definitely like, how have you found the pandemic? Like, I definitely think people are a lot nicer as well. Like, I don't know. 
I don't know if that was a, that was a pre-London thing, but everyone's just a lot more nicer just to speak to everyone, like even like, random people, not just not just mates and stuff, which is which is great. Yeah, it's something that London has needed, possibly to change that Potentially. that friendliness that we don't we don't it doesn't come naturally to us as Londoners. Nope, no, really. <laughs> been told. But you're a different mate. You're not. Yeah, not proper. I'm not proper you're London. Not like no, no. So this week on, on the podcast, we're speaking to Dan Laus. So Dan is RAF fighter pilot and is part of the, they're called the Red Arrows, but I'm going to ask Dan to give the, the exact name for what they're called. It's Rafat, is it? Well, I was explaining before to you guys that it's actually a misconception. And we had that, we used to get asked that quite a lot when I was in the team about, you know, when do you leave the uh, the, the the Red Arrows themselves are actually still part of the Air Force and they, they are called the Royal Air Force Aerobatic Team, the Red Arrows. And sometimes that first bit gets missed, but yeah, all those chaps in the team are still um, serving uh, RAF fighter pilots. Oh, nice. I think a good place to start, Dan, is kind of your journey and how, like, how you started and why you got into the RAF. I, I just always had a dream. I was super lucky. You know, I, I have met many people in certain points of my life, whether that's been choosing what exams to take, what universities to go to, what degrees to take, what jobs to apply for. Uh, and all the questions that go with that, you know, people don't want to get stovepiped in a certain area, but I was pretty lucky. You know, I, I think about five, six years old, identified that I wanted to be a fighter pilot, you know, told family, told friends, and that was it. I was, I was on one path. And, and fortunately, you know, there was certain characteristics in terms of good health, good eyesight, good hearing that were on my side that I needed anyway, but managed to go through school with that, with that one aim. So when I got the chance at 18, 19 uh, to apply and join, I did. Uh, my dad was one of those pilots, so I watch him land those airplanes and just dream that maybe one day I could do the same. And so when I moved back to the UK in my mid-teens, I had an opportunity to apply. I just did. So 18, I joined. Uh, I graduated as an officer at 19 and went off into flying training. And, and that's how it, how it starts, really. You go off into about four or five years of training. And at age 24, 25, you pop out on the front line as a, as a Royal Air Force fighter. Sorry, dad, I might have just missed it in the first part. Do you say, was it your family, your dad was a, a pilot as well? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So my dad, in fact, my dad and my mum both met in the Air Force themselves. Uh, but they, they went on another little life journey um, and found themselves a job in the Middle East at first. And they're now into Southeast Asia, where they ended up working for a company called Cathay Pacific, near the Hong Kong airline. So by the time I showed up, Mum, mum and dad were both working out in Hong Kong uh, and that was it. So I grew up there and then I moved back when I was 13. Well, I say moved back. It was the first time. I'd, we used to come back on summer holidays, but yeah, I hadn't lived in the UK until I was 13. So when you say, Dan, when you said you're on the front line, where, whereabouts or whereabouts were you within that so time front line, So front line for the Air Force means you're combat ready. So anything can happen. So the Typhoon was an amazing airplane. So the airplane I got sent to, it was the latest and greatest aircraft at the time. I, I got to it in 2009, 2010. It'd only been in the Air Force since about 2003. Mm. So seven years old for an airplane is really quite young. Uh, and this, this airplane at first was what we call an air defender. So yeah, we could, we could do low levels. So yeah, we'd fly around at 250 feet off the ground, which is about 70 meters, doing about 540 knots, which is just shy of 600 miles an hour. So that it could do that mission. But what it also could do is to get high and fast and take on other aircraft uh, in the sky you know like the dog fighting type scenario so long range missiles short range missiles guns if you needed to strafe so you got trained in all that you know and you'd be up at you could be up at fifty-five thousand feet looking at the curvature of the earth uh, cruising along at about mach 1.8 
and 1.8 is nearly twice the speed of sound but that's 18 miles a minute so you know we talk in cars about going 30 miles an hour we're doing 18 miles a minute so you're shifting so stuff's happening fast uh, and the airplane was great so you get trained in all those roles so when I first got there, we were just an air defender is what it's called. So we were there to protect uh, and make sure the integrity of the UK airspace was never threatened. Uh, and also if they go around the world, you've probably heard or read in papers or heard of the news about when they talk about no fly zones. And that's when, yeah. uh, you know, the UN puts on another country that nothing in that in that country can move. That's because we talk a lot about if you have uh, control of the sky, it's much easier to control the ground. And so that was our main role out there ensure that nothing moves in the sky so that those on the ground could get on with their job totally unmolested you can imagine if you're trying to get to the tube and you're being attacked by pigeons the whole time let's say uh yeah if someone could take those pigeons out you know have to worry about it it's gone so uh we used to control the sky and we used to get launched to go and intercept russian bombers that were to the uk now making it sound like oh my god it's all it's all kicking off like this has been happening every couple of weeks since the 60s you know, and they just still keep coming back. So the point is, you have to still show that you've got an ability to to push them away. So we used to get airborne, fully loaded with uh, with air to air missiles, and we'd go up and intercept them, pull up alongside, and you, you know, you, so close you could you, you can hear the propellers just churning away on this big bomber. And then he'd open his bomb bay doors. We'd have a look at what's going on. We have a look at a couple of aerials, give the pilots a bit of a wave, uh, and we just make sure that they never came into our airspace. Uh, and that, and that would be it. So. That was the main role in the UK. Went down to uh, the Falkland Islands to do some protection down there. Uh, and then as things start to get a bit tasty, when like Libya was kicking off, our jet didn't go to Afghanistan, which is pretty much, I would say, like the famous war of our generation. As we got into the Libya side of stuff, yeah. our jet started to get more what we call air-to-surface weapons. So now it could start striking targets on the ground as well as targets in the air. Uh, and as that was happening, the first squadrons went. That's when I went off to our, uh, our Top Gun school graduated from the top gun school and then i went into a test squadron and the test squadron there was um basically taking all the new weapons we went off to uh, training camps or test camps up in the mojave desert in california and as the top gun graduate there it would be my job to drop the bombs fire the missiles and then with a bunch of scientists work out what was best and how it could fit onto the aircraft and then it would then go back to the front line guys but the front frontline guys, I guess, you know, in terms of deployments, you know, the typhoon now, it's been to Syria, it's been to Libya, it's in Syria as we speak. Um, it's been very, very busy in the war against ISIS. I should have introduced you as Top Gun graduate down at the start. I wish I'd, wish I'd known that before, uh, before we go into yeah, uh, Top Gun school. Yeah, I was, I was like, was it, uh, flying over all over the place. Yeah, yeah, it was busy. I, I have to say, that's uh, since I've left, it's been crowned Top Gun, but... In the Air Force, it's known as the Qualified Weapons Instructor Course because the Brits are just boring. You know, uh, <laughs> so like you've seen in the film, that you have all this. Yeah, so boring. Like the Brits are really boring when it comes to stuff. Like there's no nicknames. You just add a Y to everyone's last name and that's it. So Losey or, you know, the other chap we know, Dan Jones. Is Dan jo I mean, it's not like there's nothing fun there. You know, it's not all these like fancy call signs that like you hear in the <laughs> in Hollywood movie. But um, yeah, that was cool. That was a really No Iceman or Goose or anyone. No, no Iceman. Yeah, the Americans are the Americans are still good. They still do, and you will meet them, and they'll introduce you to the, themselves to you as if that is actually their real name. And you're like, why is this guy called Goat, or why is this guy called Hammer? And it's just they just as soon as they get it, but they've actually what's really good is they they have to pass the um they have to pass the grandma test they call it. So there's a really cool American chap I I flew with, and his name was Hammer, and that's so you could tell his mum and dad or his grandma that you know he always hits the target. 
and so there was they've always got a second name to it so yeah it's good but yeah we never the brits are too stiff upper lip so we we got rid of call signs and we called top gun the qualified weapons instructor course uh okay anyway that was ace um yeah and to answer your question you know, that's seven that's i was gonna say there must be such a stark difference between a u.s pilot and an english a uk pilot do you know what no not really um same mindset same goal um all right slightly different yeah. equipment but the jets go just as fast just as high similar weaponry and the job is to go out and do the same and and when they talk about the brits and the us in politics all the time having a special relationship well one of the one of the areas that you see it most is in in the military you know if we if we go night one into someone else's back garden you can bet your bottom dollar you'll be alongside a, an american airplane and the americans will depend yeah, on true more than likely having a british airplane now that might not be that they've got fighters there we might be taking because we could refuel in the sky you see so they would send tankers which are big airliner type airplanes with hose pipes hanging out the back we pull up behind plug in take some gas and go uh we could do that to them but we we did tend to wherever you go the the americans and the the brits as well as the french and the australians and the canadians we, we are very very close uh, but yeah so in terms of starkness no in terms of yeah on the ground they're probably slightly different shape they like to chew tobacco once you get your helmet on you strap into the jet now nah, there's no difference um you're out there to do a job with one what was the uh, most challenging part then of, of of that training that you went through to qualify for it um oh, it's, that's that's a really difficult one so what, what essentially you do over seven months you get given every part of the you've already been a fighter pilot for about four years at this time four or five years uh and you've got a certain ranking within you know, the community, I guess, who's seen as being good, who's got the good reports or the rest of it. It's about 150 of these pilots in that community, of which only three to four people get the opportunity to go to Top Gun school every year. So you're already at a, a, a low percentage of chance of getting it and operate and already operating in a high percent of, of that group already. Um, but you have everything that you've achieved taken away from you, essentially, and you get broken down and you start again. So you think you've got this? Nah, let's go back to the basics. And, you know, if I liken it to rugby, you know, you could have just, I don't know, won a season. I think I heard you guys talk about it actually on one of your other podcasts or one of your other guests was talking about the podcast. Um, you know, you went from a winning season and the next year there was a couple of games you lost and it, it was a bit difficult again. Well, we were used to going out there and expecting to win a dogfight or knowing when to take a shot, knowing what angle to drop that weapon. But we came back and we were just, we were stripped to basics. So we weren't allowed to run again. We were just back to crawling. And you did one discipline for a couple of weeks back up to running. Then you went to another discipline, crawling back up to running. You did that every working day for uh, seven months, it took us. But by the end of it, you're leading the aircrafts on massive missions to go and get a job done with helicopters, boats, satellites, everything's involved. And you're the guys out the front. Uh, and I think the biggest uh, lesson I learned, this thing that I was, I thought I was good at, actually turns out I was rubbish at. And what I became very good at and quite passionate about with now yeah, this put, stood me in really good stead, I guess, for when I was in the Red Arrows, was debriefing. Uh, I didn't understand how important it was to be good at debriefing, how to assess my own performance. Not only that, to assess it rapidly and make an instant change. How, when I did something wrong, how quickly to drop it, compass, let's worry about the next thing. You know, you're traveling at nearly uh, 1,100, 1,200 miles an hour sometimes. You cannot be worrying about what just went wrong because you're going to get the next thing. That, you know, your next event's in 50 miles. And by the way, that's, that's in the next couple of minutes, so you better switch on. Um, and also how to how to debrief other people. It's 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 all well and good coming in and saying you got this wrong, but that doesn't work. 
So, so how can you, how can you notice errors in other people? Try and determine, you know, what happened, why it happened, how we're going to fix it. Those very basic principles, but it's deeper than that. And I think, albeit the flying was some of the hardest flying I've ever done. Uh, you know, you're you're up against it in terms of fatigue levels as well. It's safe, but you're you're getting pushed to your absolute limit. But it's how to debrief and i think that was the biggest thing because without that you, you just can't you just can't progress what are the kind of characters that you come across then in that kind of environment are they pretty open to that kind of um you know breakdown and discussion or do you get some real you know um personalities who resist that yeah it's like anything any, any job you're going to get a different personality i would say though when you get down to that kind of community of workers it is quite niche you, you it's quite rare to accidentally end up as a fighter pilot in the RAF. You know, when you think about the selection process, the commitment to training over about four and a half, five years to get there, then it's a total lifestyle commitment. You know, you can expect to sometimes be abroad six months of the year. If you're in the UK, you could still be on course. You're not at home. You're going on international exercises. So you don't accidentally end up there in terms of commitment levels. However, that said, uh, yeah, you can imagine there's a couple of egos flying around and um that's cool you need egos i mean there's no one's pat you on the back and said don't worry mate it's all going to be fine because inherently taking a fighter jet off the ground going off and conducting is inherently dangerous and we've all got friends who have in the uk have got up and fly their airplane on a training mission um and they've never they've not come home you know if you if you truly don't believe that there's a chance you won't come home then i don't know how you can strap to that seat i don't think i can't remember a time on the ground i ever got into the jet thinking i might not come back from this you have to have full confidence in your ability to do that job and believe in yourself and with that clearly comes an ego but there is a limit and a line uh, and more in the red arrows than on the front line we were better at taking those points on board because we created a whole environment but even on the front line there's dedicated a lot of money a lot of time and they can just come down to some people want to listen some people don't uh, and in fact on that uh weapon school that you know, the instructor would play that because when you go back to the frontline squadrons, which you would do, you, know, you would be the font of knowledge, essentially. You'd be the guy who would go to the boss and say, boss, this is kicking off. This is how I think we should prepare for it. Or this guy's not doing so well. I think we should do like this. This is a new tactic I've seen. I think we should do this. I've seen that the Russians or the Chinese are operating in this format. I think we should investigate maybe doing this. To, that could be a counter move should, should ever anything come to pass. Uh, and that rests on your shoulders and you're not even the most senior person there. So it's a big responsibility. Point being is the instructor always play the grumpy senior guy who doesn't want to listen. The guy who's done it all before and he thinks he's got a better plan all the way through to the people who are so underconfident, they don't know how to listen. Uh, and it's a really interesting mix of people. And, and as I say, over seven months, you really get, you really get into understanding who's in the room, what character you've got and how you can get the most out of your team. Um, because, you know, if you've got four fighters in the sky and you've got four other ones coming at you, you, you want to make sure the other three guys in formation are on their game. Like how how do you deal with being in such a high-pressure environment? Because I'd like, over the last over the last year, I've, one thing I've always loved is like, even if it's like work or sport, it's like being in the high-pressure environment. But I think over the past year, a lot of that, sometimes that pressure's become like, become more of a stress. Like it's, it's dealing with the pressure, but it's just kind of grown into something bigger, which is, stress not pressure so it's quite hard to differentiate that i found over the past year yeah and and i mean yeah how weird has the last year been i think it would be anyone would be lying if they said they've not felt any any stress over the last 12 months um but yeah i think you, you need that you need a certain level of stress to operate you know if it was a low stress environment you just wouldn't be able to hit 
your game. Uh, and if it was too stressful, then obviously you're also going to have a dip performance as well. So it's finding how to manage that optimum level of stress. So you're optimizing your performance within it. Now, for me, you know, it's it was it was really quite simple. It was going to be full. It was going to be hard and it was going to be pretty fucking dangerous. But you knew that you signed up on the line for that. And that, that's your job. But it's preparedness and being prepared was one of the biggest factors you can have to do that now it starts from what i mentioned before about debriefing yeah. so you debrief from the last time you did this but then you go right okay what am i going to achieve today here's the aim these are the three objectives right how am i going to achieve those today and i do that with this plan and then you know take 15 20 minutes to sit down work that out yourself that could be over a cup of coffee in the morning that could be on the tube on the way to work it could be doing whatever you're doing you know or working from home before you log on then you then you take a good 20 minutes to sit with your team and go right guys this is what i'm trying to achieve today in order for us to achieve this, this is what I'm going to do. I need you this, 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 and this. Clear, clear defined. If you've got any issues, come back to me. But clear defined goals. Uh, and away we go. And so we would get to jet to strap in in a stressful environment. And yet the pressure, there's time pressure on because you have to take off to the second. Well, pretty much to the second. You know, you got to hit your target plus or minus five seconds. That target could be 500 miles away. So you better get going. Uh, you know, you're constantly, as soon as you left the ground, you're constantly running out of fuel. So you've got constantly run, thinking about, right, any minute now, I either need to get more fuel in the sky or I need to get home. Have I made my mission happen yet? And all those things have gone into that plan. So when you get into that stressful environment and you're looking out the window and you get an attack, you think, uh, I don't know if I have enough fuel for this. Boom, I've already got a plan for that. It's done. But you've got to be careful with stress because stress can lead to an emotional outburst and a non-controlled emotional outburst or kind of a massive influence on your emotions and your output itself. So... Um, as long as you've got a plan, you allow a little bit of stress life to come in to get that optimum performance, then away you go. And then, you know, we would come back from every trip. I'm still talking about frontline stuff. I haven't, you know, even touched on the red arrow stuff yet. But you know, even even with that, we come back, first thing you do, clear environment, right? Come in, right, get a cup of coffee, do whatever. It's let that moment of stress pass you by or moment of battle pass you by, right, in this room right around the room, what happened? How did you see it? How did you see it? How did you see it? This is how I saw it. Okay, cool. Yeah, I saw it your way too. I don't quite agree with how you saw that. Maybe if we try this next time. Yeah, and as soon as you get good at that, boom, it's fine. See, now you've already prepared almost for the next time. So that stress level rises. Wait a minute, I saw this before. Boom, I got this. That's how we dealt with it in, 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 a, in a fairly basic cycle. And it's, good. it's obviously great you communicating those things as well. Like Quebec quite often, like I said, not many people debrief and obviously the, import, like, the importance of communication. Like you've you've probably experienced something that maybe another one of the pilots hasn't and just obviously sharing it. Yeah. Yeah. And it's also having, it's also being able to listen to it. Yeah. I, I yeah. could be there with, you know, five, six years experience and a guy turns up with two, but you know, he had an engine failure and let's say I've never had an engine failure. So he's going to talk to me about actually when my engine blew up, I only had one engine and I was 150 miles away over the sea. I still had to get back to the land and I still had to make sure that one worked. And you know, I could sit there and go, yeah, mate, whatever. I practice that in the sim all the time, but actually no, because he was actually in he was actually in that airplane. He actually had an engine failure. It actually happened to him. How about we listen to him and 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 listen to the emotion? Like, okay, we all know we have to fly a certain speed, a certain height. Air traffic control if it doesn't go well, you do a certain a couple of things. But yeah, fine, we could all do that by rote. How how aggressive to vibrate the failing engine feel? Like you know, if we're driving down the motorway, you know, how much rumbling are we going to get through our steering wheel if our if our front right tire bursts and shatters and all of a sudden 
he's like well, okay because we if we haven't thought about that and by the way i'm not the, i'm not this process i'm just trying to write a story you know i don't go down the motorway thinking these <laughs> if you think about that and you get on the motorway and your right tire starts to wobble and burst you've already thought about it you think well it's that much vibration okay i'm going to start going for the hard shoulder or it's burst right okay i just have to hold my line and then slowly bring yeah. myself to the hard shoulder because you know, all of a sudden it bursts people go for the hard shoulder boom it's, it's just all of a sudden you've got such a big problem when actually if you just thought about it okay it's dangerous of course it's dangerous no one wants to lose a tire at 17 miles an hour yeah and uh you know so yeah it doesn't no one wants it to happen to but it's going to happen it happens to people it is dangerous and it can happen to you but if you listen to it and thought about it and even if it's from the most junior member who's experienced it then you're pre-armed as soon as it happens boom you could pull the trigger on your own performance and, and you're good to go I'll tell you a quick story, if you don't mind, on effective communication. Something that just yeah, simply because we've gone through it already, that um, we essentially survived. Uh, and it sounds quite dramatic, but yeah, it was it was an incredibly dangerous situation. And it was when I was in the Red Arrows, uh, and we were flying from. Uh, we'd just done a massive air show in Chicago, um, our first ever million person spectator air show. So we were all buzzing. You know, it wasn't just us, by the way. There was another loads of other teams there but it's chicago air show is huge and in the uk you just don't get a million people turning up to an air show so for us we were all on this super high we had a good night's sleep got in the morning we were flying down to new york we were going to do another air show as we take off huge thunderclouds i'm talking you know five thousand feet to thirty-five thousand feet up drafts down drafts that if you took your jet in it would rip the wings off literally rip the wings off uh, and hailstones so we you spend the whole time just flying around them speaking air traffic control sometimes up to 110 miles off track but you get back on and it's all fine but it's just you have to manage it eventually we've got to come down and we're coming into as i say new york airspace really busy part of the world as you can imagine if you know heathrow airport you can imagine how busy new york airport is uh, and we're descending in around all these airliners and there's all this chat and it's very very controlled very processed you can't mess about on it because it's just not it's just not worth it and as we come down we start getting to this cloud it gets a bit thick and a bit thicker now we're in formation so there's six airplanes um in front of us that's the front of the red arrows there's six of them up there they're all about seven to eleven feet off each other's wing uh they're doing about 350 400 miles an hour uh, and they're in visual formation we're about half a mile behind but at that speed's about one and a half seconds to two seconds behind them actually quick public mass four seconds i do apologize so you know they go over four seconds later we go over anyway we're in a section behind them also in a section of six airplanes all seven to eleven feet off each other's wing all flying visually off each other and as we get to this cloud it gets thicker and thicker and thicker and thicker and that's fine as hardened rf pilots you know in the uk you can imagine you've got a flying cloud so we step it in we get a bit closer a bit closer a bit closer we're down to about I'm going to say six feet off each other's wing now just to maintain visual because it's like uh, driving in thick fog, fog when you're driving through cloud, uh, through cloud. So getting closer and closer and closer. And it's like if you can imagine the way we stay on a motorway again in um, thick fog, if you can imagine the way you missed other cars, it's literally by driving so close that you can see their number plate. That That's essentially what we do. Anyway, it got so thick that eventually, bang, we hit this updraft. And essentially what we'd hit, it was one of these thunderstorms, but air traffic control had told us it wasn't there. It was just a normal cloud. And the 12 aeroplanes get spat out. Like, no, no one's in control. Luckily, nothing too serious happens, but we can't see each other. We were all doing 400 miles an hour within four seconds of each other. A minute ago, there's a chap off my right wing who was about six feet away. I can't see him. And boom. And we all have to essentially do this thing called an escape maneuver. Now, 
that is quite stressful because you've got 12 aircraft that can now all potentially hit each other in a part of the airspace that's loads of other air traffic uh, air traffic with big airliners going to New York you've got air traffic control you've got all these people and to a man I've never seen it done like this before I, I hope to never see it done again because it's quite a scary moment in our lives but everyone you know banked away from each other at a predetermined angular bank everyone set a predetermined speed everyone said I'm going you know it's like I was red nine it's like red nine's going to 8,000 feet Two's going to 12,000 feet. One's level 5,000 feet. And between us, we, without speaking air traffic control, we all moved our airplanes to different heights in the cloud, taking different angles from each other. Uh, and essentially that sorted us out. The, the hail was so heavy, it ripped all the paint off the front of uh, my water. And there's now 12 planes scattered over New York's airspace. Uh, very little fuel left. Understanding how you're going to react in a stressful situation as you say, then executing some effective uh, communication, we managed to get everyone back together, uh, all 12 airplanes in about five and a half minutes, and we landed nine minutes later safe in New York. So just shows you how when something incredible happens out of nowhere, you could very, very quickly get it all back together again if you know what you're on about. Wow. When you when you said escape maneuver, Dan, I think me and Factor both thought about that. The scenes in movies when you just press the eject button. And hopefully you'd pop out with your, <laughs> with your parachute, yeah. but I guess not. Yeah. It, it, I tell you what, if 12 Red Arrows all had pulled the ejection handle and come down in parachutes, unfortunately, I think that that would have been the end of the Red Arrows. So we we're very lucky that day. Very, very lucky that day. There was a lot of, you can see I'm in a white t-shirt, honestly. There's a lot, there was a lot of very white faces on the ground and not much conversation after that. But that was a, a, a proper nilly moment. I think this might be going on, what, a few miles away from where commercial flights are happening you just i spread to see out your window just a red arrow brigade coming <laughs> towards you yeah, I, hope that, I, I hope this is quite a rare a rare yeah. occurrence I yeah know. i mean that is in in the 16 and a half years i flew fighters that was the only time i ever saw a breakout in cloud in fact funny and so here's the thing right talk about egos we we were we were probably guilty of that you know one of the biggest things when we sat down when we eventually brought ourselves to talk to each other again when we got back to the you know the hotel that night we found a little conference room we came and said right guys how did you see it and we stripped it all down and there was a couple of points to throw in there and some people could have done stuff a bit better some of the people uh probably were doing too much that kind of stuff albeit it was all done incredibly safely and i've never seen a formation of aircraft break in cloud and get back together again uh but to a man all of us said we probably should instead of it being emergency what we call breakout maneuver which is full power roll to a certain angle of bang certain kind of g and get away from each other we probably instead of going from that seven you know that 11 to seven feet and i'd say we pushed it from seven down to you know a little bit more just to try and stay because that's what you naturally do you get closer and closer and closer you're like don't be the one that breaks out don't be the one that breaks out actually that when 12 airplanes broke out with some of the Again, I have to be careful to say this. The Red Arrows aren't the best pilots in the Royal Air Force, but they're the best that can work as a team in that scenario. Uh, they're still highly gifted. You know, when you've got nine highly gifted pilots or 12 highly gifted pilots all breaking out, actually, do you know what? We probably should have done that in a more controlled fashion about 20 miles ago. Uh, and that was the biggest learning point. And guess what? For the next two and a half months we're in the States, every time we saw a big cloud, we relaxed the formation. We broke down into smaller uh, formations and, and it never happened again. So it just shows you that, you know, even, even at that level, those things are incredibly rare, but you can't just turn around and say that it's why did it happen? How could we have avoided that? Cause that was, that wasn't, that wasn't a, um, that wasn't a good move. I should say. How do you, cause obviously like 
sports athletes and like politicians when they do a big speech, like everyone always talks about finding the right mindset. So it's like you find like a little narrow part and then you're, you're good to go. But you've got to do that on a daily basis. Like obviously, like you said before, you never never fear for your life, blah, blah, blah. But you technically are that every time you set a foot in that plane, like if you're not on 100% of the time, like the, the plane's going to drop. It's not going to, mm. you've got to be like obviously on, on focal point all the time. But how do you get in that sort of mindset just on a day-to-day basis when you're in the, when you're in the airplane? Is that when you're in that in in that zone, the concentration level from the from the moment you go, you know, like rugby, the second you step out over that white line, you're in go mode. That's your compressed moment. When you step off it, or there's a break in play, that's you need decompression. And if you can switch between the compression and decompression quickly, and you set that mindset, yeah. that's how I, I find that you get a bit of longevity, but you also get those high levels of focus. So for example, you know, I, every, every team's got them and some people don't get it because some people wake up in the morning focus, right? Right. This is what's happening today. They've got the music on. They don't want to be fussed. They go. Whereas other people, which is me, I turn up, hey, hey, everyone has a going. Good morning. You know, a bit of a laugh. How's your night? In my environment, there was quite a few people like that. In fact, my best mate in the team was very much like that. So yeah, we would decompress, right? Here comes the brief switch on. Then there'll be a moment between the brief and getting our um, flying kit on. We used to wear, we used to pull um, about eight times the force of gravity. So an average head weighs a stone. Uh, so our heads used to weigh about eight stone in some of those moves. So we used to also, if you can imagine, the blood pressure in your uh, around your body would shift. So as you're pulling positive G, the blood is getting pulled away from your brain and your eyes. So we used to wear a special kit that would inflate as we went around calls. We would tense up against it and force the blood to stay in our heads so that we keep keep um well a keep conscious but b keep enough blood in your eyes to keep visual contact with each other but if you relax then you would lose you, your vision would go gray and essentially eventually black and then you would also black out yourself so we used to have kit that would help us protect against that it's called g-lock uh, which is loss of consciousness through through g-force so you used to have to protect that so as we're putting that on and putting our g kit on you know and you know it's just the stupid stuff you know we we'd wait for if we were supposed to check in on the hour it would be the last person to put the helmet on loses. Just stupid stuff. Whereas yeah. you would have thought you'd like to have your helmet on or prep for it. Or, you know, it would he would come over and uh, it doesn't matter, Ron. He'd come over and piss on my on my jet just to annoy me. You know, just on the wheel. You're like, mate, what are you doing that for? Just to just to like wind each other up, have a laugh, or he'd nick my helmet and I'd have to go find it. It would be hidden somewhere in the airplane. You know, just just that kind of stuff. But the second, and we used to also have like a check-in tune. That was my that was my job in my last year. You, you play a play a tune to get everyone g'd up on the radio, and it'd end you know ten seconds before the boss got the reds to check in. So that was the kind of stuff I did. But then the second your helmet went on, and you put your chin strap up, your oxygen mask on, and vibrant, boom, you were transported into another world. That's where that's where I crossed my white line. I'm like right, I'm I'm in the game now. It's time to go and. I watched the, and by the way, no ways am I comparing us to Formula One drivers because they are proper rock stars who get paid like rock stars, uh, have rock star lifestyles and live all around the world. We we fly airplanes for the Royal Air Force and, and we're very proud to do so, but it's it's not that. But I've watched um, Drive to Survive, you know, on Netflix. Uh, and I mentioned this to you, like, you see them, you know, like, I, for example, my favorite character in that is, is Daniel Cardo. I mean, he's just always smiley, always chilled, but he's the ultimate professional. You cannot question... Daniel, Daniel Ricardo's commitment to racing, how he drives, how he overtakes. You know, you can see him joking around, but he's no different. He's going to go for every driver's line or an overtaking line and get it. 
Um, but you see it. I don't know if, if you guys watch it again or if anyone out there has listened to this watches it. Just watch them. When they put their yeah. helmet on, you can see it in their eyes. Their eyes change. You know when it's just that, that shot of their helmets and you can only see their eyes through their visor? It's a different, it's a different beast. And that's a total focus. Total focus. And then clearly, race over, game over, show over, back down to winding each other up. And uh, that's just how you do. You need that decompression because there's going to be a compression in the drop beyond it. And if you can't let go of that stress and let those little decompression moments just get the adrenaline out, get the ego out, get all that out and go again. And then I found it always, it, it stilted my, my progress or my performance. It sounds like there's actually not many, the stress levels once you're into the, um, the action sides, you, you just forget about that and you, you're focused. And then when you land again, you, you debrief and then you're, you're yeah, relaxed yeah. again and you carry on with it. So do you think that you, when you finish uh, flying, whenever that is, do you think you'll miss that, that shift? Cause it sounds like there's a kind of, you know, met, a kind of not a Zen state, but you're, it sounds like you're going somewhere where you basically don't have to think or be, you'll be you're kind of beyond stressed in a, in a way. You're just so in the job, you're so in the zone. And I know that, you know, lots of people who do things like that like sports people um they miss that that going to that place and they miss those pressures when it's finished do you think do you think about the future and and how you as a personality would would deal with that when it's when it comes to it yeah 100 percent. and i i do miss it you know i would i give my right arm to jump back in an raf typhoon tomorrow you know put the reheat in this thing goes from 200 to 600 miles an hour in about 20 seconds you know, it can go nearly twice the speed of sound. It can pull 9G. And then, you you know, you talk about the Red Arrows, you're flying all around the world, displaying to people, showing best of British, you know, flying over Buckingham Palace for, you know, the change in the guard, the Queen's birthday, display to a million and a half people, show everyone what the UK is all about. You know, uh, yes, I, I miss those moments already. I was always prepared that it would end, but I, I, I do miss it. Now, I still fly an airplane. I fly in a very different capacity now. I fly a private airplane for for a a company and a family that own that company and the stresses are different the stresses are about being on time it is about producing an excellent service for people it's about making sure that aircraft is flown safely that can be flown all the time making sure that you know I, I always talk about um I actually heard it from Eddie Jones that he said he retired when he's coached the perfect game I'm not going to retire from flying and I because I don't think you could ever well I will retire one day when I'm old and knackered but I I've I've brought that into my life it's like well if you aren't, it doesn't matter at what level you're flying. You know, I'm no longer going upside down, doing rolls, doing all these stunts that we used to do. Got a completely different job. But until I can do that job perfectly, then I, I haven't accomplished it. And so I find a level of stress and reward in that. Now, it's not as high as before, but there's still a read across. And I really enjoy that. What I have understood, though, is that by leaving that type of lifestyle to one side now, having achieved it and done it, and in some ways run the gauntlet and it's all gone, all gone well, achieved a childhood dream. I'm very, very proud of what I've done. But I, when I missed it, I realized what it's gained now, and that is a different lifestyle. You know, I have more time for family, I have more time for friends, I have more time to go and search for other stuff. And, and so where I'm now trying to find my stress and my fulfillment is helping other people potentially achieve what I achieved. And I don't mean to be a red arrow. I mean, how can we sit down and talk about your day-to-day -day life? How can we talk about the things you and I have just talked about now? and help them to unlock that next potential and I, it's gone from wanting that fulfillment of stress to <laughs> not wanting other people to feel the stress but watching other people succeed with their stresses and become successful and i'm getting a real joy out of helping people do that now and um it, i've just it seems to have uh, slipped across quite nicely 
Yeah, that's really interesting, actually, because um, in the publishing that I do, we do quite a lot of nonfiction kind of business self-help books. And a surprising amount of those people are ex-service people who have been, you know, top of their game in either, you know, the SAS or the army or flying or whatever it is. And then they get involved with, yeah, with with laying out what they learned from those experiences and making, you know, wanting other people to just try and reach their potential in the same way. So it's interesting, isn't it? That's um, how it's just led to that now, that you've been to that place and you want to let others try and get to it as well. Yeah, absolutely. I, I just think, and you can, you know, I, you know, not to play my sound too much, but I, I'm not the cleverest lad in the world. You know, I got all the GCSEs I needed. I got all the A-levels I needed, but I didn't go to university. I just, I just went and I applied myself in a technical role that's quite difficult and I learned my trade and I learned the basics of it, which is the stuff that, that sometimes maybe people aren't exposed to at certain levels. And so, you know, maybe they see a ceiling well before anywhere near the, the ceiling that they can make. Uh, maybe we get that you know, maybe there's a thing there with the military you know we're constantly pushed i i never i can't remember a year in my 16 years in the air force when i wasn't working for the next event now i know we're probably all working for promotions and but yeah i'm talking like right i'm combat ready fighter pilot i've worked seven for this you think okay have a few months of joy no, now i want to lead a formation now i want to lead a bigger formation now i want to be on the top gun school now i want to graduate that now i want to go and do this now I want to be a red arrow. Now I want to be this. And it got on and on and on and on. And you're constantly chasing. Uh, and when you sit back and stop, you realize that actually some people stagnate elsewhere. And there's so many ways you can get around that. And yeah, you know, if there's any nuggets of information I could just pass out that people want to listen to, people want to hear, you know, talk about different ways in which we used to breathe, brief, all the stuff. If, if anyone could say that and get something out of their life that they at one point actually didn't think was going to be there in the morning, then that'd be incredible. Yeah. And, and that's certainly something that uh, in the last few months I've got more and more into, and I'm really enjoying it. Mean, that's great. That's great to hear. It's like, cause yeah, yeah. You're it's like with a lot of people we get on the podcast. Yeah. Your circumstances are unique. Like me and facts are never going to fly a plane apart from uh, what are those, what are those I've flown a glider. They're pretty good. Flown a, flown a glider once back in the day when I was a, when I was a kid. <laughs> You fall, you fall over the glider. But yeah, like although your circumstances are unique, like there's there's relatable content that people can use in their day to day life. Because that's one thing that me and Factor Bro said from doing this podcast. Like, I don't think we've realised the potential of like once you harness your mind or harness your weaknesses, the possibility is endless. That's the and and you don't. It doesn't. The fact that I flew airplanes doesn't need to read across into yeah. anyone else's doing. Yeah, you know, we're not here to. There's more people in the world who've been successful not being pilots. You know, so I'm not here to teach people to fly airplanes. The principle is you could apply this to, you can apply this to just going to the shops. Ridiculous, and you wouldn't, because you'd probably be a bit strange, you know, and suffer from the, the most chronic OCD in your life. But you can get up in the morning and you could be walking to the tube and you could be spending that time in the tube now, processing maybe a different uh, culture, yeah. you know, you know, a different approach to your, your life. You, you could be setting out values that you want to live by. And those values, if you then have these values you want to live by, that's going to create your own behaviors. And if you live by your own behaviors, then you're going to create a culture. Now, if you do that with yourself and it feeds within your team, now you've got a different culture within yeah. your team. That's not flying airplanes. That's just, that's just basic stuff. And all of a sudden you, you created a culture and work that you wanted. Is that a high performance culture? Is it a successful culture? Is it you know, an inclusive culture? What are these things that maybe in your workspace, in you yourself, in, in your relationships, families, but that's a, that's a difficult one, but in your work environment, you know, it's that simple. Yeah. It can be that simple. Pick some values, hold each other to them, 
you get a different culture. Boom, all of a sudden you're miles ahead. And that's got nothing to do with flying airplanes. I just learned that flying airplanes. Yeah, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? How um, getting to to that level when you put your mind, if you're young, for example, you put your mind to something, you achieve something and you get it. It's that first, it's that first achievement, that feeling of it and completing it that kind of, I think, allows you to then go on and be bold and try other things. But it's getting that first, it's getting the faith that the work that you're doing and not just, you know, a week or two weeks, but, you know, years and years of something that will actually take you to that place. And then when you have that connection, I think you, if that is applicable in, in every, in every walk, I think. So, I mean, for you to, you know, the years of preparation for it, I guess you knew that that was something you wanted to do from the start. So that whenever you maybe were, you know, not, um, on the right track or hitting the target or the, you know you weren't quite feeling it you had that at, as the end point but i think for people who don't have that end point or they can't quite see it and they can't quite picture how a b and c leads to that it's very hard to stick at it and that's i think you know if, if you're teaching people how to just have faith to stick at those things and 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 assess when it's going wrong so that you're not just spending years going in the wrong direction then that's that's the most important first step you can take in it uh, absolutely and and the thing is you know when when you get that pat on the back or you taste that success or you see what your your goals or you see your beliefs coming true i mean that's the most powerful thing and just to add on to what you're saying in fact because i completely agree there's an other the, the flip side to it and it's something that i think helped me get to where i was was i learned quite a lot of times through failing uh, and it's not you shouldn't fear the failure and this is what i love talking to people about you know it was my dream as I say, five years old to be a fighter pilot of the Royal Air Force. I told everyone. In fact, to the point that when I graduated as an officer at 19, my mum, they're all still family friends. My mum bought our family friend's daughter, who's the same age as me, that when I, I told her at kindergarten that when I joined the Air Force, she can come and live with me. You know, when I was five years old and didn't know what's going on. But she was she was there on the parade square, aged 19. You know, so it's like it, it clearly had been uh, a journey for me throughout my whole childhood to make it. However, However, I didn't apply for university thinking I'd get it. First year I applied for the Air Force, I was rejected. It's like, okay, well, that's that's not gone well. You have to wait a whole year before you can apply again. And this is like 17, 18. Now do I make that decision to go to university? Do it? What do I do? So after my, my A-levels, I got a job as a, a laborer on the building site and a Domino's delivery pizza, uh, you know, delivery driver um, in the evenings. By the way, that's second best job to be in a fighter pilot. That was an awesome job, that one. And I did that for a year. And I gave it another go and I got it. Uh, and then, you know, I went through, well, I went through officer training. Uh, I did okay. I nearly did quite, I, I nearly did really well, but I failed right at the last moment in this big exercise. And I didn't finish in like, you used to get rewarded if you finished in the top thing. I just missed out on that, but it's because I failed, but I learned from that. Went to flying training. Now, when I went to flying training, flying training is about four and a half years. And it's very, it, it can be very scripted. You know, if you fly this height, this speed, this heading, set this power, you will stall. And if you stall, what you do is you set this, nose down attitude you put this much power on and when you get to this certain speed the aircraft's not stalled anymore and it's all these kind of stuff i mean it goes on and on and on but it's in the book and i had a lot of friends who were very good at reading something in a book and replicating the sky and you know i was okay at it you know i got to well but i wasn't the best i always won you know the good lad award the um you know the most most improved uh and actually the one i'm most proud of was right at the end of my training i got the reward that um the award, sorry, of 
uh, the pilot that the instructor would most want to go to war with. And that's been a very special one for me. But that had nothing to do with my flying ability. That was to do with attitude uh, and commitment to the role. And just to finish my point on succeeding through failure, I failed a trip on a very junior course. I failed a trip on a medium course. I failed a trip. And then right at the end of training, it all gets quite dynamic. You know, you take two Hawk aircraft, if you've ever seen them there, the BAE system Hawks, they're based up at Anglesey and RF um, Valley. You take two Hawks at low level, you do the entire length of Wales at low level between the mountains, not speaking to each other. If you want to turn left, a wing flash would mean that he would turn. And we'd have to go and hit a post box, essentially, in the south of Wales if it was at three o'clock on the dot, plus or minus five seconds. And you got given the target at 10 o'clock and you worked it back. On the way, there are other airplanes out there to try and stop you, to attack you, and you used to have to counter them. And you roll out, and all of a sudden, you're not in the part of Wales that you should have been. You should have been over a forest, but you're over a lake. So you've got to work out where you are whilst keeping it low level, whilst doing it all at 450 miles an hour and making sure you're not going to run out of fuel. Now, it is hard, and it still gives me shivers now. I think I was even able to do it. But the point is, there's no book. The book now is a theory. It's not a fact. It says, if you see this, you should do this. Um, and that's when these guys started failing for the first time ever. And they didn't know how to recover from it. And one of the things that held me to the point that I then succeeded in the way I did was because I had it, it, it meant that I no longer failed it, which is incredibly important. Never fear failure because that's where you learn. Not only do you learn how to do it right the next time, but you learn so much about yourself. So I knew how I reacted in failure. So I knew how to compartmentalize it. I knew that that error doesn't mean anything now. It's like playing rugby. That knock-on doesn't matter now. That matters at the end of the game. We'll talk about it. What it means now is getting back and recovering the defensive line or getting into the scrum and making sure that you put in you know, the next best world-class scrum and winning the ball back. You, you can't take that ball on to not worry about errors uh, and I also know I knew then that actually how I needed to prepare myself for it so I, I 100% agree I had that positivity and I had that um that mindset of the fact that I was succeeding at a young age and things were that I dreamt of from five years old were happening for me but had I not failed as much as I had I, I wouldn't have made it as far yeah, as I did that makes complete sense yeah and I guess without without those failures and knockbacks, it won't. It's not as it's not special, is it, or meaningful? If you did it all with your eyes closed, there's there's no there's no point in it. But <laughs> no, no. Well, you say that. You say that. You say that. I'd I'd have, I'd have, I'd have taken the easy route. <laughs> yeah, looking back, actually, tell you what, I could have saved myself a lot of time. <laughs> no, but it's true, isn't it? It gives it. Yeah, but it gives it the it gives it the significance. <laughs> I used to have a full head of hair. Yes, it's clearly a very stressful job, then. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, yeah. It must be quite. It must be quick and easy to take your helmet off, though, Dan. You know I mean? Yeah, exactly. Well, it just slid off in the sweat, easy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this is pressure. This is real pressure. This is real pressure, right? <laughs> you can stick your you can stick your thunderstorm in New York up your ass, mate. Oh. This is proper pressure. Yeah. So triple threat round, I flip a coin. The loser's got to do a song or a story or a joke. And I believe it's me and Dan this week. Back to you last week, I think. Yeah. Oh, I was yeah, last week, coin. yeah. Do you want first, I can actually hold the on, first sorry, time? Twenty two episodes in the first I'll time. I'll flip a coin. I think I flipped a coin before. Right. When do you want to go? Want to go now? So we'll go. So Dan, you 
We'll just make sure it lands I'll, be, I'll be completely honest and I'll I'll show it. So I'll you call it in the air then. And then if you get it right, then you can step <laughs> out this one. You can eject from this horrible situation. And actually, okay. Ah, good. I I'll call Tails. It is Tails. <laughs> it is it is Tails. Tails TV. Ah, you get in. So, um, <laughs> what have we so. got, Mesh, for this week? I've got. No, I've got a few options. So, um, so actually, so it's quite it's quite a while ago. Actually, now I think about my last holiday I went on before the pandemic, and um, so I went with my family to uh, Mallorca, so a lovely, lovely resort in Spain. And the first night we were at the hotel, and Evenings Entertainment was a Spanish musician, like fantastic, pulling the rabbit out of the hat. Doing, making all the characters with balloons and then uh, he goes oh for my final act uh, I'm going to disappear so he goes uno dos then he left without a tres see yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, that added in the laughter from Dan yeah. Yeah. In, in, yeah. The, in the editing yeah. stage got a chuckle got a chuckle please follow and share us on Instagram and Twitter at all chats pod with a space